This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. North Carolina was one of the 13 original colonies in the United States. As such, that means that before colonizers, this land was already occupied, specifically by First Nations, Native American, or American Indian people. Tribes and federations had long established communities, rich customs, traditions, ways of learning and knowing prior to the arrival of Europeans. At Creed, we invoke this history by beginning all of our presentations or sessions with the land acknowledgement. It honors those who occupied this territory prior to us, as well as the many who are still among us. Presently, North Carolina is home to eight indigenous tribes. These are nations with their own varied histories, identities, languages, and cultures. What they share, however, like other groups of color in the state, are some pretty concerning education outcomes. This often goes overlooked because in part, we forget about native people, but they are still here as they have always been and they shall remain. I spoke with native North Carolinian, member of the Kahari tribe, and indigenous education scholar, Dr. Susan Faircloth of Colorado State University, about what it means to be native and the indigenous American educational experience. This is part one of what promises to be an extended learning journey. Listen in. So thank you for the invitation to, um, to be a part of this podcast. So my tribal affiliation, I'm originally from North Carolina. Um, I'm from a small town, Clinton, between Raleigh and Wilmington. And my tribe is Kahari. It's C-O-H-A-R-I-E. Um, I grew up in, the, in that area and lived there until I went to college. I went to Appalachian State um, back in the late 80s. And both of my parents continue to live in Clinton. My, my parents are Jean and Marie Faircloth. Um, they lived on Indian Town Road, um, that's, and they continue to live there today. They spent their entire life there in Sampson County and in Clinton. And I think it's really important to, um, to, to acknowledge them and to give credit to them. Um, I think that you know, they had a dream for me that was much different uh, than the, the life that they were able to live. And I give a lot of that credit, particularly to my mother. Um, both of them, as I said, grew up in Clinton. My, um, both of my parents went to an all-American Indian school, um, just a few miles from where they grew up. And it was East Carolina Indian School. That school operated from the early 1940s into the early 1960s. And that school plays a really important um, role in both my parents' early life and development, as well as my own development. So I'll talk about that for a minute, if you don't mind. Absolutely. But the East Carolina Indian School um, was one of the first uh, comprehensive schools that included a high school for American Indian people in the eastern part of North Carolina. Because up until the early 1940s, if you were American Indian and you lived in that part of North Carolina, 
you had to make some choices about your education um, because there were no high schools or no schools that went beyond um, grade eight. And so for many of the native people in that community, they made um, some really difficult choices. Some of those choices were um, not to identify as American Indian so that they could go to the white schools or they could go to African American schools. Um, many of them opted to board out, or that's what they called it at that time, with families in other areas of the state um, where there were um, better educational opportunities and opportunities for them to go to high school. So my parents were really fortunate that in the their early um, 1940s that there was a school, the East Carolina Indian School, that was established by our tribe, by the Kahari tribe, in collaboration um, with the local, um, the local school system in the state. And they established that, as I said, because there were schools for African-Americans and whites, but no high schools for American Indians. So my parents went to school there. Um, they went all the way from what was considered to be low first because there wasn't kindergarten until the time that they graduated um, from high school. And so I grew up hearing so many stories about um, my parents going to school there, having you know all American Indian teachers, when they went to school in the early grades particularly they didn't have indoor bathrooms they never had a cafeteria the community pulled together to build a gym um, and to improve those facilities and so that was really a core part of their experience and i grew up going back to that school for our tribal ceremonies our um, annual powwows because that school existed until, like I said, the early 1960s when it was closed due to integration. Oh, okay. and, um, and when the school closed, and I'll say this and, and then I'll go on to a little bit more of my own story, but when that school closed, it ended up becoming the site of what was then Sampson Technical Institute, so a community college. And the community college operated there for several years until it purchased um, new ground and built a more modern facility. One of the stories that I grew up hearing was that when that community college left the East Carolina Indian schools and those grounds, that there was one area in that, in that school that our community had really rallied around to build. And the community college turned that part of the school into a brick mason um, facility. Mm. And when the community college left that facility, they left it in shambles. They didn't clean up the floor. They didn't wow. sweep out the cement. Um, and so our community came back and you can imagine, right? This is a, a community that's, you know, relatively, had been a relatively poor challenged community, but they saw the value of education enough that they put their blood, um, sweat, tears, and monies into building that facility. That's right. And then it was left. Um, a few years later, our tribe was able to get that facility back and it now operates as our tribal headquarters. Wow. Right. So, um, you know, each year growing up, I would go back, as I said, for our tribal ceremonies, for our powwows, for gatherings, um, reunions, and my parents would relay these stories about their school. Um, so education was always, you know, at the core of our conversation. It, it was the place um, that we identified with, you know, if you can think of education as, as, as not just a thing that we do, right, with students, but it was a place. Um, 
And so I always returned to that, to that place and that space. And I heard those stories mm-hmm. and it figured really centrally in my development. Um, in spite of that story, you know, I was one who went to school, um, not in an all American Indian school, but in an integrated school system and had other native students there with me. Um, and I had, you know, I've reflected on this a lot over years. I, re- I remember my first grade um, teacher, Mrs. Spearman. Um, I remember my kindergarten teacher, Sue Smith, who I'm still friends with on Facebook. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. and, and I remember my third grade teacher who, when we adopted our daughter, um, that teacher was in her 90s and she came to our baby shower and gifted our daughter oh, wow. with a silver spoon. And so I, I did have, I've reflected on this a lot. I had some really strong models, you know, particularly in those early grades, but then there was a shift, um, you know, when I transitioned into middle school and high school, um, where I never felt like my identity as an American Indian person was really valued outside of um, the one person who ran what was then a Title IX Indian education program, mm-hmm. um, which is funded you know, by the federal government to provide supportive services right. for American Indian students. But throughout that time, um, other than that person, that native person who ran that program, and another person, another teacher who had roots in the native community, but who didn't identify as native, other than them, I never had an American Indian teacher. Wow. This is in Clinton, right? Right, in Clinton. Right. Okay. And um, I never had that that role model, that person who could model to me that, hey, I could be a teacher, right? Or that education valued people like me. Mm. And I remember particularly in high school, um, I had a cousin who grew up in other parts of the country who went to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and I wanted to go. And I asked a guidance counselor for a reference, and he never gave it to me. And in spite of that, we were able to work so that I ended up getting an alternate nomination um, to West Point. You would never know that looking at me today. Um, but you know, so I, I, I tell that story quite often because there was a disconnect that the aspirations and the expectations that my school system had for me and other native students was in direct conflict with the dreams and aspirations that my parents had. Um, and particularly my mother, Now, I love my dad, but my mother was the one who said, you're going to do your homework or I'm going to do it for you, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's going to get done and it's going to be done right. Um, and so in my family, it was never a question of whether I would go to college. It was a question of where I would go. Um, And I tell that story because, you know, now as a mother of a 10-year-old, I think about how often um, my school system could have asked my parents what their dreams and aspirations were for me. Mm. And I don't recall them ever doing that. Um, And so I I am a fierce advocate for other American Indian students and and people, um, in part because over the years I've become an educator and a researcher, but first and foremost, because I'm a mom. Right. And, and I'm a mom who wants my daughter um, to have an education that's rooted and grounded in who she is culturally, um, who she is um, as a fierce, strong, young native girl. Um, and I want them to ask her 
and me and my husband, what are your dreams and aspirations? Because once I left elementary school, I don't recall ever being asked that. So there's the, um, there's the cultural mismatch, right? Um, right. An experience that differs greatly from that of your parents, right? Um, which was one that was uh, enveloped in within community, right? Uh, literally laid brick by brick by those from within, right? Who didn't right. have access. And so what, you know, whatever may have been lost as a result of kind of a segregated schooling environment, um, there were also assets there, right? That it, it appears, um, you know, you weren't able to enjoy, you know, having gone to post segregated or desegregated, if you will, I won't say integration, right. uh, schools. And now um, as a parent, as a researcher, right, the, 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 the desire to know the quests and the desires of a family for their student and to tap into the identity is something that becomes incredibly important, right? It is incredibly important. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that I, I started while I was a faculty member at North Carolina State University several years ago, I started what was to be a summer project. Um, and that summer project was to go back um, to that East Carolina Indian School and to conduct oral histories. And what I wanted to do was to be able to understand that that experience of being an American Indian person in an all-American Indian school with mm -hmm. all-American Indian teachers um, in a place that didn't have a lot, like a lot of financial resources, but it had a really strong cultural knowledge and capital mm -hmm. and a really strong rooting and grounding in what it meant um, to be Indian um, at that time, right, in, that, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And I wanted to understand that. And so what started as a summer project to conduct these oral interviews has now morphed into something that I've been working on for seven or eight years. And I've been able to do about 65 or 70 oral um, histories or oral interviews with people who went to school at East Carolina Indian School, um, some who graduated, some who did not, some who went to school there and then were caught up in that transition um, mm -hmm. into the public schools. And I was also able to interview several of the people who taught there, including one woman who had Alzheimer's, uh, but I was able to get her on a day when she remembered being a teacher. Oh, there. my goodness. And did you say 65 or 70? That's a huge quantitative yeah, stuff. Oh, my amount. goodness. Um, but I'll say to you, there are two people that I've not been able to interview, and that's my parents. Mm. Because they've offered, you know, but when I tell this story, what I, what I say or how I describe it is, I don't think I'm ready, right, to hear their experience. I've, I've heard their experience, but I don't think that I'm ready to engage them in that deep work. Um, because when I did these oral interviews, um, I had people that I had grown up with, my elders, who cried, um, and they thanked me for asking them about their story, because they said that they had never been asked, um, and I had one man who, who said, talk to your dad and ask him how hard it was during that time, um, and I have not yet been able to bring myself to sit down and, and have those hard conversations with my parents. I want to do that, um, but I think I need to be in a space where I'm ready to hold those stories um, and to be able to share them. So yeah, for me, it's, you know, education is a project, right? It's, it's one in which my community um, was not granted even the same rights and the same resources that African Americans were granted by the state.
that's and I want to say that again. Yes, please. American do. Indian people were not even granted those basic rights and provisions that African Americans were in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we know that African Americans weren't granted what they should have been granted, right? Absolutely. And so when you think about that, I mean, when I talked to those teachers who had been at that school, um, several of them said to me they never recalled ever having a new book for their students. Um, one of them said that she actually went to um, a publisher and, and asked for books for her students because they weren't getting the resources they needed. And why was that? If you could elaborate on that. And actually, um, as a caveat to that, right. I could ask a question that um, is not in the prepared uh, notes, but it's, it's right. one that's surfacing for me, if that's okay. And in answering why there was not even um, the semblance of uh, educational rights that uh, you know, African Americans or lack thereof had. Right. Um, why would um, one is why was that? What's the unique history behind it? And then two, if you could elaborate. Um, I know that there are listeners out there who, when you say American Indian, particularly other minoritized groups, that may say, well, "Why, you know, we were instructed, you know, not to say American Indian because, to an extent, you know, Indianism is, is a misnomer." Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in a quest to reclaim language and, and decolonize, you know, there's been a desire uh, to, 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 you know, to say Native American. But what I hear a lot is, you know, American Indian being used as well. So would you mind kind of answering both of those, if you could, the history behind uh, the lack of rights educationally and um, around that term American Indian? Certainly. And, and, you know, both of those questions we could do an entire podcast series on because they're, they're very complex, um, complicated um, questions. And I think that you could ask any other Native person and you would probably get a somewhat different um, response. So I'll answer the, the easier of the two first. You know, for me, I grew up being, um, being known as American Indian and Kahari, probably American Indian more strongly than Kahari. And if you trace back and you look at the history, I mean, one of the questions that, that you had asked um, in the list of questions you sent me was, you know, to talk a little bit about the different tribes in North Carolina. So there are eight different tribes in North Carolina. Seven of those tribes, including Kahari, are recognized by the, the state of North Carolina, but not by the federal government. Uh -huh, yeah. There's only one tribe, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee, which is recognized by the federal government. And we, we have the Lumbee, you know, which there are 60,000 plus members who have been petitioning the federal government for federal recognition for years. And we're recognized at one time under a congressional um, congressional act, which was later determined, uh, you know, by the federal government not to be um, an act that the government wanted to to recognize any longer. So there's a really complicated history there. But but you know, throughout my life, I always was known as American Indian, or as I said, Kahari. Mm -hmm. When I went to college at Appalachian State in the 80s, um, I, I laugh about this because I came home and my parents were calling themselves Native Americans. And, and I joke with them and I said, apparently I didn't get the memo because, you know, when did you all start calling yourselves Native Americans? Um, because we had always called ourselves American Indian or Kahari. And that was during a time when my parents, um, I have a younger sister. I started college and my sister started kindergarten. And my parents were really active on the powwow circuit um, and really active in, 
in, in our tribal culture and in the cultures of native people across the East Coast. And so they went to powwows and traveled around a lot with my sister and other community members. And so I think that transition to referring to themselves as Native Americans was a part of that, you know, exposure to people from other communities and other tribes um, who were using different terms. I, I continue to refer to myself as American Indian. Um, and I don't think that there's a right or a wrong answer. I, I think it really, it's one of the other questions you asked me is about sovereignty and sovereignty has to do with um, individual tribes rights to determine their futures, to determine um, their educational directions, to determine um, how they live their lives, how they self-govern, all those kinds of things. And a part of that is determining what you call yourself. And so I think if, if there were a right answer to this question, the right answer would actually be that it's not American Indian, Native American, First Nations, Indigenous. What I see many um, American Indian or Native American people referring to themselves as is by their tribal identity first, right? So um, it's more about I'm Diné, I'm Navajo, I'm Lumbee, I'm Cherokee, I'm Kahari, I'm Cheyenne and Arapaho, um, as opposed to um, yeah, I'm Native American or I'm American Indian. But then I also talk to others who use those terms interchangeably. Does that make sense? It does. And I appreciate you clarifying um, that. And as I'm, like, like I said, I'm sure those listening, um, you know, particularly those who, who, who try to be progressive and critical in right. their thoughts are always wanting to know and wanting to model. Right. Using right. language. Right. Because like, as you mentioned, language is important. But like you said, this notion of sovereignty really depends on how folks would like to be referred to. In right. And, and I and I think what I would suggest is ask. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, um, there might be some who want to be referred to as African-Americans. Others might want to be referred to as black. That's true. I think that, you know, it's really presumptuous of anyone to assume that we know what an individual or a group. Um, wants to be referred to as. Um, and so I think that it really is incumbent upon us to have those questions and ask, right? Ask in a respectful way, but, for sure, uh, for sure. but ask those questions. You know, going back to this notion of tribal sovereignty um, and what that means to be sovereign in a nation, um, can you talk a little bit, of course, I mean, I know this varies wildly, so forgive me for asking such a broad question, but when it comes to you know, tribes and the organization of tribes, what tends to be the relationship uh, between those tribes? Um, and maybe you could speak specifically from Kahari uh, and the United States government with the recognition that, you know, some are federally recognized and not, but the relationship and what it means to be a tribe. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I can, but, you know, I would also say, I mean, you know, there could be a part two, three, four, and five to this conversation because there are, there are a lot of, um, American Indian legal scholars who can speak much more eloquently on this topic. I think of David Wilkins, who's a Lumbee man, uh, professor and legal scholar. I met David. Excellent. Yeah, Sacy uh, right. conversation. Uh, Sacy. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. Um, there's Brian Brayboy, um, who is a faculty member at Arizona, um, Arizona State, who um, writes you know, around tribal critical theory and, and talks about sovereignty. So there are a lot of people who can speak much more eloquently about this um, or who can talk about tribal relations. I think for me, um, you know, when I talk about sovereignty, I, I describe it as being, as there being practical sovereignty and then there's, there's legal political sovereignty. 
Um, I think that, you know, when you think about American Indians, and sometimes we group Alaska Natives into that conversation, if you look at some of my writing, I often do that, particularly um, in the work that I do around the um, National Indian Education Study, which is the only national study of American Indians and Alaska Natives in the nation. It comes out of the National Center for, in, um, for Educational Statistics and the U.S. Department of Education. And in, in that data set, we group together American Indian and Alaska Native students. And yet we also recognize that those are two distinct groups. And within those two distinct groups, there's a wide array of diversity. And so when I think about American Indians, I'll speak about us um, specifically, there's over 600 different federally and state recognized tribes. So about 573 or 575 of those tribes are recognized by the federal government. The number varies. I mean, I see numbers ranging from 65 to over 120 state recognized tribes. It varies in part because, you know, there are tribes that have petitioned the federal government for, for federal recognition. And so some of those tribes are being recognized on an ongoing basis. Some of those tribes are being de-recognized, right? I mean, we have example um, of a, a tribe in a state um, recently, you know, where the federal government said, we're no longer going to recognize you or recognize your lands. So when we, when we think about, you know, the legal sovereignty, we, we think about those tribes that are recognized by the federal government. And so that notion of sovereignty means that those, those individual tribes, those 570 plus tribes are recognized by the federal government. If, if you think about it in legal political terms, those are independent sovereign nations that have the right to engage with the federal government in the same way that Mexico, um, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, um, and any other country has the right to engage with another um, nation. So that's 570 plus nations, Indian nations, that are located within the boundaries of the United States. Does that make sense? It does. It does. With it, so each of those has a right to act as an independent sovereign nation, but there's also a dependent sovereign nation status because many of those nations also are dependent upon um, funding from the federal government um, mm -hmm. to fund health, education, and welfare. Now, that's not because the United States was, um, was just a kind, gentle um, actor, right, that wanted no. to take care of <laughs> That's people. not what happened? That's not, <laughs> not the story? Yeah. That's the story <laughs> I got taught. <laughs> right, right. That's the story I was taught, too, as an American Indian person. And I try to think about how to say that, you uh -huh. know. Um, in a politically correct way. But it, it, it wasn't, you know, that the United States um, said, okay, we're going to provide health and education, health, education, and welfare, because we're a benevolent um, father, right? Right, right? It was because those, um, those nations ceded lands to the, to the United States, to the federal government in exchange for the provision of health, education, and welfare. Mm -hmm. And those provisions were set out in a number of treaties that over the years have been abrogated and violated. Right. Um, and right. at times over history deemed to, to not even um, be enforceable. 
right. almost entirely. And I mean, we're talking about in real time, some of those trees are right. still being. Still happening. Right, right. right. So, but, but in spite of all of that, you know, those tribes that are federally recognized have a right to that independent sovereign um, nation state relationships with the federal government. On the other hand, I am the member of a tribe that is recognized by the state, but is not recognized by the federal government. Mm-hmm. So I have no right, no legal right to that same sovereign nation status um, that those other 570 plus tribes have. So the federal government does not have to provide health education or welfare to members of my tribe or members of those other seven tribes in North Carolina that are not recognized by the federal government. The state um, has a relationship with us, and, and much of that relationship comes under the umbrella of the Commission of Indian Affairs housed in Raleigh, um, which you know brings the tribes together. It also works with the with the one federally recognized tribe, but it brings those tribes together and advocates and works on behalf of those tribes, but under the auspices of the state government as opposed to the federal government. Gotcha. And I think, I think that's, that's a really important distinction. I mean, if you go up to Cherokee, you see the Kuala boundary, right? The Kuala boundary where the, the Eastern band is located, they have their own police force, their own government, their, um, their own school system. And, those things are operated, or those entities are operated by the tribe. Um, whereas, you know, my tribe primarily attends public schools operated by the state and the county or city in which those schools are operated. They're not tribally controlled. They're not tribally funded. Um, because, so there are those certain rights. If you think about tribes up on the New York border, some of them have their own passports that are issued by the tribe. Really? Right. Wow. Because they're sovereign nations, they have yeah. the right to do that. Now, the U.S. government can say, we don't recognize those passports. You, you may exit the U.S., but we don't grant you a guarantee that you'll be able to enter back on that tribal passport or that nation passport. So it's really, it's really complicated. There's these you know, legal, political sovereignty, and then there's practical sovereignty, how it plays out on a day-to-day basis. Well, I think you've given me an idea for uh, how to create uh, some future uh, future extended episodes for sure. But I, I, you did an excellent job of breaking that down for the layperson like myself. Yeah, but um, but like I said, I do want to acknowledge, you know, that like that's my, you know, that's my fifty cents, you know, explanation of of something that people spend their entire lives, you know, trying to understand and unpack. And I would want to honor their work that. That's right. Um, you know, many of them could also critique my explanation, my quick explanation of it. Sure, sure. And, um, you know, what I took from that is that there's immense diversity uh, within the category of Native American or American Indian, if you will. Uh, The relationships uh, politically, socially, uh, between federal and state governments vary and all of the amenities that come from that vary as well. Um, And yet, you know, um, it's perhaps the category, uh, the umbrella category doesn't do justice uh, and capturing all the nuance. But when we right. talk about, you know, issues that impact Native communities, particularly around education, we do notice that there are some trends, right, that tend right. to be consistent uh, with, uh, you know, with First Nations folks. And um, when I think about our students in North Carolina, but listen, like you said, we can have this conversation nationally, you know, when we talk about schools. Right. Uh, concerns me is that Native students are one of those groups 
uh, that continue to be disproportionately suspended at a higher rate, uh, exponentially higher rate than their white counterparts. In North Carolina, Carolina, it's about three and a half times more than their white counterparts. Um, And I mean, that's close to African-American students, Mm -hmm. right, at four times. Why, and this may be another situation where you may want to refer to another scholar or other areas of research, but what do you think might be happening? Do you have any idea what's, what's, what may be behind that? Right. Well, well, let me go back and clarify one other thing that I said, and then I'll try to, to answer that. So, okay. so, you know, you were asking about the you know, relationship between tribes, and we talked about this umbrella term or set of terms, you know, American Indian, Native American, Indigenous. You know, one of the things I failed to say is, you know, within those 570 plus federally recognized, you know, um, and a total of 600 plus federally and state recognized tribes, each of those tribes has its own unique culture or cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are over 200 different indigenous languages still spoken to some extent today. And I think that's a really important um, piece of information to over share. 200? Over 200. Wow. Um, I think it really speaks to the diversity and the complexity um, of, of indigenous peoples or native peoples today. You know, one of the things that I grieve most, and I grieve this more as I get older, is that my tribe is one of those tribes that I used to describe it as as having lost our language. And I gave a talk once and an elder called me out and said, your language wasn't lost. Um, When you say that your language was lost, it's as if you're taking on responsibility for letting go of your language. Mm. Your language was stolen. Mm. It was purposefully taken from you. Um, and was purposefully taken because that was that was a part of our government and our educational systems approach to educating um, native people. And if you go back to the the boarding school era and the work of um, of Richard Henry Pratt in the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, his motto was to um, save the save the um, save the man by killing the Indian. And so mm-hmm. the, the goal was that education would educate anything out of a native person that would remind them of who they were as a native person. So native people weren't allowed to speak their languages. They took on an English name, even when they didn't speak English, um, their hair was cut. They were forced to wear uniforms. They weren't allowed to live in their native communities um, and that that was the educational philosophy that girded much or, or guided much of Indian education, you know, for the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that's just one era of education. Mm. But so I think, you know, that's really a, an important part of this conversation. And then you asked me the question, well, why do we have, you know, high rates of, of suspension or expulsion? Um, and I think it's I think it goes beyond the high rates of expansion of suspension and expulsion. Um, I did a fellowship with the UCLA Civil Rights Project several several years ago um, and worked with um, Gary Orfield. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the leading scholars, if not the leading scholar, you know, around um, civil rights and education. And one of the reasons that I worked with him was to look at this issue of graduation and dropout rates among American Indians and Alaska Natives. And we did work specifically in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but one of the things that that um, John Tippaconic, who is my mentor and a former faculty member at Penn State, he and I worked on that paper. 
And one of the things that we argued in that paper was that, you know, we couldn't just look at graduation and dropout rates. And we wanted to talk about dropout. A better way of talking about that was push out. How many of our students are actively pushed out of school? And I think, again, that's an important language matters and it's important to get our terms right. And so when we think about the educational experience of many native students, there are some some active intentional acts to push our students out. And that doesn't suddenly happen in high school. Um, in many cases, that that active that active act or process of pushing out begins as early as the moment our children enter school um, in kindergarten. It happens with the way in which we assess students and the way in which we identify them as having disabilities. Um, and if you look at many Native students, um, many of our students tend to be identified as having learning disabilities and speech and language disorders. Um, I would argue that it's, it's in many of those cases, it's not a speech and language disorder. It's, it's a disorder of the process that assesses our students, right? That, that doesn't recognize that many of our students may not be fluent in either English or their native language, but they're able to, um, to navigate both languages, which is, says a lot about them, right? A lot about their communities and their families. So, um, but, but it's, there's a lot that's packed into that educational experience. And I, I also want to be cautious that I sound like I'm painting a really negative uh, picture of education, and I acknowledge that. And I acknowledge that as someone who was an educator for a short period of time and someone who, who prepares future educational leaders. I think education is powerful. And I think that it has the power, right, to, um, to provide the supports and experiences that indigenous people need in order to be truly self-determined individuals. When it is not done right, it has the power to undermine that sovereignty. And so you didn't ask me those questions, you asked me about suspension, but I'm giving you a really long answer because I think it goes beyond suspension and expulsion. That's great, that's great. And Keep discipline. I think it's, yeah, I think it's rooted and grounded in, you know, I started out by telling you the story of how I went through school um, and my only really exposure to, you know, native educators was through my Indian education program. It wasn't through having native teachers in the classroom and it wasn't through people modeling that perhaps I could be a teacher. It wasn't through people asking what what I wanted or what my parents wanted from me. It was them having a certain set of expectations. And in my case, my mother spent 37 years working at Lundy Packing Company, which is now a Smithfield plant. Um, and so she butchered hogs for 37 years because that's all that she ever thought that she could do. Um, and so if my school would have been successful with me if it had graduated me and had sent me to work in that same hog slaughtering factory that my mother worked in, right? Um, and so I acknowledge that I wouldn't be where I am today if it were not for my mother slaughtering hogs. But I also acknowledge that she wanted her children to have other options, right? And so when we go back to, to that issue of suspension and expulsion, I think part of it is due to, do we have enough native teachers, male and female or transgender um, or non-binary? Right. You know, do we have enough native teachers, guidance counselors, principals in our school who our, te who our students can see um, and can see the possibility of education? Mm -hmm. um, I think that, um, when we don't understand the cultures and the context from when our students come from and who they are, then we don't know how to understand or interpret um, 
either their actions or their inactions in schools, right? That's right. Um, and I think that, I, I think about my myself, I have a 10 year old um, and I've struggled even as someone who has a PhD in education, someone who was a special ed teacher. I struggle communicating with, with schools. Um, and in most cases, my daughter is, is the only, if not, um, she's either one of two or the only native student in her school. And, you know, one of the things that I say to those schools is, you know, I have the words to be able to come in and advocate for my child. I have the, the language, the words. Um, I have the ability to take off work and come talk to you when I don't feel right about what's happening. What about those children who don't have those same resources? Their parents don't have the language right. or the words right. um, or the ability to come in and advocate for them. I think that has a lot to do with why our students um, experience disproportionate levels of discipline, um, particularly exclusionary discipline. So, sorry for the long answer, but no, no, I was going to say, like, admittedly, your answer, sure, it was long, but what you did is you, um, you know, painted a very, uh, you know, robust historical narrative. One, right, that these things are not, um, that the suspensions, disproportionate suspensions, are not an uncaused first cause, but rather an extension of a history, right? Right. And then there's a multitude of different factors that fold into that, right? right. It's not merely about, uh, you know, as some would say, that, oh, when Native kids are behave, misbehaving at high, well, no, that's not the case, right? There are systemic features to the problem that right. exacerbate it and lead to it as well. And a lot of which uh, boil down to culture and what the expectations are uh, of mm -hmm. certain students and how we staff our schools. Right. You know, all, right. all of these things that create the atmosphere either for success Mm -hmm. or the perception of the expectation of success or the perception or expectation of misbehavior and how that's even defined, right? How we right. Even define misbehavior and who's doing the categorizing of that. Um, right. so I hope I did a pretty decent job. No, I think you did. you did. I mean, and I think I, I used the example of my daughter um, and she says, mom, you talk about me all the time, but you know, she gives me lots of examples. Um, but I think about her, you know, we, um, when she was in kindergarten, you know, one of the things that the teacher said, and our daughter's name is Journey, is Journey can't walk down the hallway in a straight line without touching walls. And my husband and I chuckled and we said, we, we don't want her to walk in a straight line and we want her to touch the walls, right? Because we want her to experience her environment. We want her to explore and we don't want that curiosity educated out of her. Well, what about the, that parent that doesn't have the language or the time to be able to come in and explain? Well, she's doing exactly what we've taught her to do, which is to explore her environment um, because that's what we do. And so I, I think it, it's complex, right? That our, our children are complex and yeah. the systems in which they're educated are complex. And so I don't think there's an easy answer to explain it. I do think that you know, we could argue that there's an underreporting of the number of Native children who are expelled or suspended or don't graduate, oh. um, right? Um, because, you know, oftentimes, and in, in if you read, there's a book that's called Beyond the Asterix. It focuses on higher education, but it talks about, in many cases, American Indian and Alaska Native students are excluded from data reporting because we're such small numbers um, that we, we are considered to not be statistically significant. And so you just don't talk about us or you don't report us, mm. right? Mm. And so I would argue that in many cases, we may not actually know um, 
what's going on with many of our children because we fall behind that asterisk. Wow. Right. So, um, you know, so oftentimes when the end sizes, right, or the population sizes are too small, we tend to disregard because we can't really draw uh, an inference uh, reliably on what we think may be happening. Right, right. Yeah. And if it doesn't make sense to you as a quantitative researcher, then you can't, you can't deal with that. Right. Right. And so, yeah. And so I think that we really have to think about that. Right. And, and that's not even, that doesn't have to be limited to us as educational researchers, but we think about people within school systems who collect data, right, and report it. Um, and I tweet back at organizations, even in North Carolina, that will report out data for African Americans, Hispanics, Asian Americans. And I, I say, North Carolina has one of the largest populations of American Indians in the nation. Why aren't you um, reporting on our data, right? Because well, you need to be talking about us. An example of that would be um, even reporting the numbers of uh, and the denominations of teachers of color. Right. Right. The way we currently do things in North Carolina Department of Instruction is black, white, and then we smash everybody into the category of other, Other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) which is like a tremendous disservice. You think about all of the uh, inequities that could be hidden in that. And how can you reliably respond to a problem that you're not accurately, you know, measuring? Right. Um, so that sounds like sort of what you're what you're talking about there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, one- we we have to rethink. I think our methodologies that we use. Um, it's not just our teaching methodologies, but it's the way in which we make sense of what we're seeing and we make sense of the data that we're reporting. Um, you know, it's we have to we have to spend some time critically. I think unpacking the assumptions that we make um, about yeah. data that we're collecting. It's- you know, going back to, because I believe stories are data as well, right? Um, so going back to the story about your daughter, her journey, and the notion that she can't, cannot, right? Incapable of walking a straight line, not touch, mm-hmm. touching the walls. And how people, um, from a, a pedagogical perspective, don't understand that to be a cultural imposition, right? right. No, right. E- even that, that seems relatively harmless, right? But the idea that one should be able to walk a straight line and not right. touch the walls. And so the question I have kind of deals, because I've seen you going back to some of the tweets, we follow each other, right, on social media. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so I think you know where I'm going here. Mm-hmm. Going back to these cultural archetypes, right, that are right. so often deeply embedded in our education system, one of which is, I think, are very racist portrayals of Native or Indigenous folks. Mm-hmm. These things tend to come out in a multitude of ways. They're embedded in the narratives we tell, the stories we tell, how we characterize, who we include, who we don't. Um, but it's particularly like around Thanksgiving, quote unquote. Right. Um, we see this happen all of the time. And I've seen you go in, right, <laughs> <laughs> on, on on local schools and districts because and, and it's, you can set your watch to it. Right. Mm-hmm. And really every year and even in North Carolina, mm-hmm. there are teachers or schools who are tweeting out pictures. Look what we did for our uh, Thanksgiving celebration. And they're right. these caricatures of Native and Indigenous folks and a misrepresentation of that Thanksgiving story in general. Right. right? But. Um, could you could you talk about why you think what advice would you give to educators who are listening right now to teach about 
indigenous folk, indigenous people in a way that is true, in a way that is authentic. And why that is, why that in particular gets in under your, it gets in your craw so much. <laughs> I, I would use a word, but I won't, I won't use it on your um, education. Um, okay. Okay. Well, we're not politically correct. Yeah. I will yeah. say that, you know, we, we kind of go hard, but that, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the way I describe it is, is it pisses me off. I mean, that's the word that I want to use. And, and I say that, that passes. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I say that you could be pissed off from an academic um, intellectual um, perspective. And so I do tweet that word out because I think that, um, you know, a, a few days ago, um, someone that I worked out, worked with, called me out for being intense. Um, and I said to them, I own that. And I own that these times call for intense actions, right? Mm-hmm. And intense thought. And, and I want to, I will own it, but I want to apologize for being intense. And I think we need more people to be intense because education matters. That's right. And, and portrayals of native people matter. Um, so yeah, I can be intense and I can be intensely pissed off by the misportrayal of native people. And so uh, James, what I think you're initially referring to is I engaged in, in this project over the last two years and the project centered around um, the month of November, which is American Indian Heritage Month nationally and um, at right. the state level in North Carolina. It also happens to be the month that coincides with Thanksgiving. And so I knew from my own experience, you know, as a Native person um, in schools and as in my experience as a Native parent and as an educator, that November seems to be the time that we suddenly remember that we have American Indian people. And we, we talk about them. Now, there's other times during the school year that we talk about Native people, you know, the West um, and, and other times like that. And then we seem to disappear until Thanksgiving comes around. And often the treatment of Native peoples is around the Thanksgiving and the coming together of the pilgrims and Indians. And so one of the things that I see too often is um, educators reverting to this this old practice of having children dress up and pretend to be pilgrims and Indians. And I reflect back to my own educational experience in the, the fourth grade when I won the, um, the Thanksgiving contest for having the best pilgrim uh, apron. And my grandmother, who has since passed away, helped me sew that apron. And I was so proud of it. And it didn't hit me until, you know, I was in college that there was something wrong with that, that I, as an American Indian person, um, was being taught about pilgrims and Indians from a non-Native perspective, and I was winning an award for the best pilgrim apron. There was just something that didn't uh, ring true with me um, as an adult. And so... Uh, so, you know, we we adopted our daughter, Journey, who's Cheyenne and Arapaho, and when she started school, I do what all good researchers do, right? I do a little bit of social research to see how the school my daughter's going to attend treats um, the the portrayal of Native people, and I start with Facebook. And so um, when our daughter was was starting kindergarten, I began that project of looking to see how Native people were portrayed. And what I found is in the school that she was going to attend is that they had children dressing up in paper feathers and construction paper feathers and outfits made out of brown grocery bags. Mm. Um, and, and I thought that's not going to fly, right? That, that is just not, my daughter is not going to do that. And so we talked with her school about that and said, we need you to understand our daughter's American Indian 
um, we talked about her tribal background and we talked about my experience, you know, as a native educator and how that was not culturally appropriate. And, um, and then we continued to see those, those portrayals. And this was in a school in North Carolina. And so we went in to talk with the school and the school's response was, well, there was another native person who said it was okay to um, have children dress up and pretend to be Indian. And I said, you know, none of us can speak on behalf of all native people. And just because that person didn't find a problem with this doesn't make it right. I'm telling you that this, this is not right. Um, and so we had to spend a lot of time talking with the teacher and with the principal about why it was culturally inappropriate. Um, and it boiled down to this is that, you know, there are ways to teach about native people without having to misappropriate our culture or our dress. And, you know, I won't tell you how old I am, but in my lifetime, other than in those occasions in school where we were asked to dress up and pretend to be Indian, I, I have never worn, um, an outfit made of a brown paper bag from the grocery store, nor have I worn feathers made out of construction paper. And so when we talked to that school, you know, they, they talked about the, the making and the using of the paper feathers as being a way of honoring native traditions. And I had to, to explain to them, native people earn feathers. They earn feathers for honorific things that they do for acts of bravery or for um, things that they have, gifted back to their communities. And, you know, there are certain rights and responsibilities that go along with the awarding of those feathers. And to centralize that down to a piece of construction paper is quite offensive and culturally inappropriate. Right? Um, and so, you know, we, we fought that battle. We moved to Colorado. We fought that battle again. And, you know, what I've done over the last two years is during the month of Thanksgiving is to look primarily on Twitter. I've now transitioned from Facebook to Twitter and looking at the ways in which schools across the nation present Native people during the month of, of, um, of November. And I have seen everything ranging from, you know, the brown paper bag outfits, the paper feathers, um, to teachers and educators doing the tomahawk um, chop. Oh, and so what I've done, and I, I, yeah, I hope that I do this in a respectful way, is I tweet at those schools. And I, I tweet at them saying, you know, please recognize the dangers of these practices, not only to the Native students who might be in your school, and in many of these schools they won't have Native students, but not just to those Native students, but to the non-Native students that you're teaching um, about Native Americans too, right? That's and right. think about the stereotypical images that you're promoting. And so it doesn't just dam damage me and my child, it damages those who we're going to interact with. Um, and then I tweet, uh, you know, I go beyond just calling that out, but I also tweet resources to them. Um, resources in Education Week or resources in the Washington Post or scholarly articles that talk about, um, or I point them to Debbie Reese's um, blog that she does on American Indians in children's literature to give them alternative, more culturally appropriate practices that they can use. Um, and I've been surprised by the number of, yeah, I, I've, I've been surprised by the number of schools who either block me or don't respond back. Mm -hmm. But then there's a bright light because in the midst of that, I get those teachers or those principals who tweet back at me and say, we never saw the problem with this. And thank you um, for calling this to our attention. And so I will take all those blocks and all of those instances of being ignored 
I will take that if it means that there's five schools or five teachers that recognize the inappropriateness of this. Uh, because change is incremental. It takes right. time. Um, but I also tell people, you know, American Indians, you know, we have faced 500 years of sustained, forced acculturation and assimilation. That's right. The killing off of our peoples, our languages, our cultures, and the stealing of our land, and yet we still exist. That's so right. we are a patient and a resilient people. Um, and I think that, you know, I know we're nearing the end of our time. You know, if people can be left with anything, I don't want them to be left with just the story of the difficulties that we face in school mm-hmm. or in life. I want them to know that we are a strong, resilient people who have persisted in the face of things that were done to kill us off, eradicate us, silence us, and yet we persist. Um, and I think that that speaks to our strengths, right? It speaks to our, our resilience. It speaks to uh, the role of culture. It speaks to our ability to adapt. Um, it speaks to just so many strengths that I want people to know um, about us and about our people. That's in, in, yeah, and you're right. I mean, we have about uh, about ten minutes or so. We're coming up, on, but um, so much, so many nuggets, so many gems uh, that you that you uh, laid out there, and to end on the beautiful assets that are in the in the demonstrable strength and beauty of the culture and resilience of the people, and then also the notion that it's important not just for native folk, right? As you're telling these stories, I'm recounting in my mind, and yeah, in first grade, yeah, they they had us cut out uh, brown paper bags, you know. And then I also, I followed you when you were kind of, you know, (laughs) uh, doing your work, right, Uh, passionately. And I noticed in some of those spaces, there were black folk. And it was like, man, there was a sense of shame. It was like, man, you know, so you're right. It's not just for Native folk, it's for non-Native folk as well. And then learning. And I have to take a moment to give a shout out to uh, Wake County Public Schools. Mm -hmm. Right. uh, A couple of years ago, uh, one of their employees, uh, Lauren Macarenas, who... Uh, tweeted essentially, hey, teachers, don't do this, right? You can right, hire natives right. without doing And that alone caused controversy, you know, mm-hmm. um, just the, the pushing back on the traditional narrative of native people that bucks against, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the zeitgeist of the, you know, socially dominant culture wasn't right. some feathers, but you're right. If it's, if it's enough to get people to question and think critically about their perspective and say, man, I haven't thought about that before. Maybe right. I visit that then it may be a good thing. Sort of on that note, um, I want to ask you a very specific North Carolina question, and then we'll end, um, as is our tradition, uh, on allowing you to cast a vision for radical imagination. Um, But recently, North Carolina had a school uh, apply for a fast track uh, charter, right? It's a charter, Robeson County. Um, And, you know, it's heavily populated by Native or Indigenous folk out there, huge population. Um, And this school, although they were applying for an accelerated approval of their charter, uh, was rejected um, on on the basis of several things, but one of which was uh, the central uh, uh, purpose that they were going to focus on red pedagogy as part of their curricular approach. And so uh, those who were on the charter school advisory board who rejected it called out after researching um, and doing cursory research on red pedagogy that they felt that it was anti-American, quote unquote, right. and that it didn't focus enough on American exceptionalism and that it was divisive and didn't bring people together. And why not focus on all the things that uh, 
you know, the good things that, you know, that America has done. And, you know, I couldn't help but um, pause and, <laughs> and really, you know, as a person who's not native, but is African-American, I know what it is to offer uh, narratives that are, that are inglorious and, and cut across uh, that are countercultural, right? That don't right. walk in lockstep with the dominant great American idea. Um, when you think about when you think about uh, that situation or like situations, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the rejection of something like red pedagogy, but just the idea of centering the experiences of Native students uh, and that being considered problematic or divisive? What, what are your thoughts on that? Right. You know, I, I think, again, you know, I mean, I can give you so many ideas for, for other, um, you know, podcast um, segments. And I, I think there could be a really interesting conversation with um, Dr. Sandy Grandy, who's the person who wrote that book, um, Red Pedagogy. And I know her, she's an excellent scholar. Um, and I know some of the people who were involved in writing that proposal for that charter school. Um, and some of them reached me out to ask, you know, for my opinion on it. I, I didn't really get immersed um, in that in that discussion. I sat back and watched it play out. But but what was in the back of my mind was, you know, the the bulk of what we're taught in school is about American exceptionalism, right? It's about history that's told from a non-native perspective. And so I, I think that we really have to question why the original people of this land, the indigenous people, Native Americans, American Indians, Kahari, Eastern Band, Lumbee, Waccamaw, Halawa, all the different tribes of this land, um, not, to, not to mention of this nation, why we aren't privileged and at the front and center of the telling of this history of this land. Um, so that's where I would go with that. But I, but I think for me, there's an even greater question or issue is, why is it that a group of people in Robinson County feel the need to establish a school um, in addition to the schools that currently exist. I think that's the issue that I want people to focus on. There's mm -hmm. a need, right? There's a real yeah. sense that their students' assets are not being acknowledged and that there's too much attention placed on perceived deficits. And there's questions of why is it that in Robinson County where there's a large native population, right? One of the largest, if not the largest in the state, that their students are consistently, persistently scoring, um, you know, at the bottom of, of all academic measures. Now, academic measures can be problematic, right? But why are they scoring at the bottom? Why are students being pushed out of school? Why are they not graduating? Those are the questions that I, that, that I wish the board um, and the people who were reviewing that proposal had really interrogated. Why is it that these conditions are persisting, right? Um, I think red pedagogy was a piece of that proposal, but it wasn't all of that proposal. And it didn't, it didn't, it, I think that there was an opportunity to really interrogate and to authentically engage those questions of equity, right? And, um, equity and resources in equity and outcomes in that particular county. Um, and that opportunity was, does that get at your question? Oh, it does. Uh, and furthermore, I think it challenges our listeners to um, not just deal with the questions, but also to get at the root causes, right? right. Uh, what I hear you saying is that there's a need there, mm -hmm. right? And perhaps mm -hmm. we should question why there is such disparate outcomes to begin with and why there is a community of folks, Native folks, mm -hmm. who are wanting to, despite the presence of uh, mm -hmm. traditional public school options, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
wanting to uh, erect a school, right, that embraces uh, a native-centered approach that authenticates the identities. And I think it goes kind of, Mm -hmm. I don't want to give people answers right to that question, but they could easily point to the beginning of this podcast, which you tell them the story of your parents, right? Right. and maybe there's some breadcrumbs there for folks to kind of retrace their steps and, uh, and, and find their way back home. Um, right. And I think it's, it's complicated too, right? And I, and I would say, you know, that, I mean, there's, there's, there's larger questions around charter schools, right? What, I mean, what does the establishment of a charter school do to the tax pace in a county or counties that are already economically challenged? That's, sure. that's, a, that's a big question, right? Yep, another um, for sure. Right. And so I, th- I think we have to, it's so complex um, that I think that red pedagogy, we can focus on red pedagogy because I think that was the low hanging fruit that was easy for, um, for DPI or the board to latch onto, right. And to find that to be problematic that because that's low hanging controversial fruit. But I think there are some much more um, deeper systemic issues that don't go away and are not addressed by the decision not to approve that charter school. Those issues persist. What are we going to do about that? Um, what are we going to do that, about that's that? That's where I want to spend my time and efforts. Right. Yes, what, what are we going to do about that? Um, because I think that, you know, education, education for me, and I say this oftentimes, um, and we tell our daughters, uh, teachers this, I remember going in, my daughter was in third grade last year and we started out the year by going in and saying to the teacher, you know what? We want our daughter to learn how to write and read and do math. Um, we want her to excel at science and, and be academically, um, to perform academically well. But you know what? At the bottom of the day or at the end of the day, what matters most to us is that our daughter know that she is beautiful, that she is intelligent, that she is loved and that she is cared for. At the end of the day, we want her to know that you know her as a Cheyenne and Arapaho young girl. We want you to see her beauty. We want you to see her inquisitive nature. We want you to value and to care for her. And if she reads and writes and does math, that's great, right? But at the end of the day, we want to know that you have cared for our beautiful little one and that you have held her in the same esteem that we hold her in. Can you tell us that? Can you do that? Right. Um, and we'll work together to make sure that, that she, she writes and does all these other things, but we want her to know that she's valued as an indigenous person. Um, and I think that's one of those things that, you know, the proposers of the charter school were trying to get at is, they want their children to read and write and do math and science, but they also want their children to be valued as indigenous people. What are we going to do about that? I feel like the question I'm about to ask, you may have already answered, um, but um, it's tradition on, on the margins for us to ask all of our guests to end by casting a vision into the, into mm-hmm. the future. You know, because we cannot be so enamored and all consumed with what we want to destroy that we don't paint a picture um, of what we want to build. Right. So as you project your radical imagination for all students, students of color, but in particular, Native or Indigenous students, what does that radical imagination look like for education? Right. You know, and I, I, you sent me that question and I pondered over it. Um, and I thought, I don't know that my, that, my, um, that my dream or my view or my hopes are all that radical. 
Um, but I want to draw on something that I wrote recently for an Education Week blog. So Please do. if you'll just bear with me. Uh, in, that, in that piece, I was asked, you know, what are some of the greatest challenges that are, that are facing Native children today? Um, and in writing that, I reached out to my daughter and I asked her because I think she can speak much more eloquently about what are those challenges that are facing young people um, than can I. And so she gave me a list of challenges and things to, to talk about. She talked about invisibility and erasure and misperceptions and um, racism. Now, she didn't use those words because she's 10, but those are the things that I got out, out of talking with her. Um, we talked about untapped potential of our students. And then I thought about what can we do to address those, those issues. These are some of the things that I recommended. I recommend that, that we as educators um, ask ourselves some really hard questions, and I'll give you some of those questions. One is, are we really seeing and honoring American Indian youth, their cultures, their languages, their families, their communities, their nations? Are we addressing the intentional and unintentional erasure of Native peoples, our communities, and our tribes from our textbooks, from our library books? Are we combating misperceptions and stereotypes of Native peoples that reinforce the notion that we're peoples of the past rather than a vibrant, diverse, and resilient part of the world today? Are we preparing students to fight back against increasingly racist acts evidenced across the nation each and every day? Or are we complicit in the continued use of racist mascots and symbols and imagery? Mm. Are we looking for and seeing American Indian students' gifts and talents and not just their struggles? Are we proactively working to recruit and retain American Indian teachers and creating pipelines for them to enter leadership roles in our schools? Are we combating poverty and its effects on Native students, our families, and our communities? Are we acknowledging that students cannot truly learn academic knowledge and skills until their hearts and their bellies are fed and are full? Are we pushing back against structures that enable and allow Native students to have lesser facilities and resources than their non-Native peers? Are we working to unpack and unlearn our own teaching practices that fail to recognize, to honor, and to incorporate Indigenous ways of knowing, doing, learning, valuing, thinking, and being? Are we acknowledging our own roles in contributing to the graduation dropout, push-out crisis among Native tribes and communities? And are we willing to acknowledge that Native students have great talents and strengths and a desire to learn and grow? but academic spaces are too often not structured in a manner that taps into these talents and strengths and that leaves our students wanting more. And then I'll, I'll end with this. So I, I pose those questions because I think if you want to call it radical, I think the radical part of it is that we have to, we as educators and we as, as those who prepare the next generation of educators have to interrogate our own beliefs and practices and assumptions and ask what are we gonna to do to create different educational futures, not just for our native students, but all our students. And so as I wrote those words, um, I, I looked at my daughter and I thought about um, some words that I, that, I, that I say over her each day. And so I'll just read this to you quickly and I'll end. I, I wrote, as I stroke my daughter's hair and say these words to her, I'm reminded that less than 60 years ago, my own American Indian parents attended a segregated school 
and that until the 1940s, American Indian students in my own home community in North Carolina could not attend school beyond eighth grade without being boarded out to another family or without identifying as white or black so that they could attend segregated schools for white and black students. One generation later, I attended integrated schools but only had one paraprofessional who identified as American Indian. Today, I teach in colleges and universities where I'm typically the only American Indian female in a college or school of education, and few of any of our teacher education or principal preparation candidates are American Indians. And I ask the question, have we made progress? Yes. But have we progressed enough? No. And so I, I end that by saying the radical part of that is, you know, I would not be so passionate about education if I didn't see the power of it, right? The power of it to educate not only minds, but hearts. That's right. If I didn't see the power of education to affect some deep and powerful change. And so I am critical of an institution that I'm also a part of, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that if we want our teachers to do better, then I, as a director of a school of education, have to do better in the way in which I prepare future teachers and future principals, right? Because they're coming out of the schools that I lead and the schools that I teach in. And so when I call out um, educators, I'm calling out myself, like I have to do better, not just for Native students, but for all students, that I have to see their power and their potential, um, and that I have to be committed to asking myself these own deep, hard, challenging questions, and that I have to be willing to go beyond being pissed to take action, right? So that, that's my radical imagination, is that we all get pissed. Yeah. And that we all interrogate our beliefs and our actions and that we ask ourselves, what are we going to do about that? Well, I'm for being passionate and being pissed. And uh, so, so long as the root of radical um, in, in the etymology, meaning grounded, mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and I think that I think that's it. Right. I think there are ways in which to do this work. I, what I want to see is people go beyond talking about equity and talking about disparities and actually doing something that changes those conditions that sustain um, inequity, right? And, and I think that's, that's, that's what I wanna do. That's the kind of work that I wanna be engaged in is going beyond the talk to really thinking about how can we help create um, these radical, powerful, vibrant new futures. That excites me and I think that's really great work. Well, I'd argue that's the work that you are doing. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, I am grateful to you, um, Dr. Fred, rather Susan, <laughs> for uh, taking the time to engage. And you know, and even as you mentioned, change is incremental. And even if uh, just uh, listening to this podcast can help, you know, influence or potentially cause one to think differently about how they create those conditions and the role that they play, uh, right. then that means we're doing our part. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time um today sharing your wisdom your knowledge and helping to grow uh my understanding as well as others around these issues and i look forward to continue to work with you uh to make that vision become a reality and i, I want to thank you for for doing the work that you're doing i mean you are doing some important work that's having impacts not just in north carolina but across the nation and more than that i want to thank you for recognizing um, Native people and for making space for this conversation. So I really appreciate you for that. My absolute, my absolute pleasure. <laughs>